I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, why the rules of ownership are just stories we tell ourselves, stories that control our lives. Here's one of those stories. It's about a man named William Meredith who lives outside of Louisville, Kentucky. William loves his family, cherishes his privacy, and keeps a shotgun handy in case he ever has to defend either of them, which he did one summer evening back in 2015. He was in his house minding his own business when his daughters came in from the backyard and started talking in unison the way kids do. Dad, they said, there's a drone out there flying over everybody's yard. William went out to have a look, and sure enough, there was a drone hovering a few hundred feet away. You know, I wanted to see if it was going to stay there, and it did, and, and then I reacted. He went back inside, loaded up his shotgun, and waited for the drone to fly over his fence. And when it did, William shot it down. An $1,800 drone belled with a dollar's worth of birdshot. A few minutes later, the drone's owner marched up to William's house shouting, are you the son of a bitch that shot my drone? And William, who keeps his goatee neatly trimmed and a pistol on his hip, told him, if you cross that sidewalk, there's going to be another shooting. The guy kept his distance, but he didn't leave. He called the cops, who ended up arresting William for criminal mischief. William was shocked. Criminal mischief? He was defending his property. The way he saw it, that drone was no different than a trespasser. In fact, it might have been worse than a trespasser. We live in a society now where we don't know what these people are doing. We don't know if they're pedophiles looking for kids. We don't know if they're thieves. We don't know if it's ISIS. William spent the night in jail. When he got out, he made T-shirts. We the people, they read, have had enough. He adopted the nickname Drone Slayer. And then he hired a lawyer to defend his right to shoot any man, woman, thief, or pesky ISIS drone that dared to step or fly over his property line. His argument rested on a particular story we tell ourselves about ownership. It's a story called attachment. The idea is that something is yours because it's attached to something else that's yours. House, yard, soil, sky. In William's mind, he owns it all. Setting an uninvited foot on his lawn is no different than flying your drone over his backyard. This ownership story, this idea of attachment, has ancient roots. It dates back to the 13th century when a Roman jurist came up with the idea that whoever owns the soil owns up to heaven and down to hell. A column like a shaft of light. And for the last few hundred years, some version of that maxim has been enshrined in our legal texts. But that doesn't mean attachment is infallible. What if instead of a shotgun, he'd been armed with a rocket launcher? And instead of a drone, he'd been firing at a passenger plane? Attachment is just another story we tell ourselves. It applies only if we all say it does. So why did William the Kentucky Drone Slayer win his case? Well, he told the better story. The one that got the jury nodding their heads. And here's the surprising thing. That's really all ownership is, a collection of different stories, conflicting stories, competing with one another. More often than not, who owns what comes down to who can tell it better. I bet you always thought ownership was a fact, not a narrative. Something objective and empirical. A given like the sun rising in the east or Paul McCartney being the best Beatle. That's certainly how I looked at it 
until I read a fascinating new book called Mine, How the Hidden Rules of Ownership Control Our Lives. It was written by two law professors, Michael Heller, who teaches at Columbia, and James Salzman, who has joint appointments at UCLA and UC Santa Barbara. In the book, Michael and Jim make the audacious claim that much of human history, maybe even all of human history, is one long ownership dispute. Adam and Eve grabbed something that wasn't theirs, and look where that got us. Paris took another man's wife, and it led to the Trojan War. Think of the Declaration of Independence, paragraphs of lyrical, highfalutin language that boils down to, hey, England, you think you own these colonies? Yeah, right. And these debates aren't just about physical possession. Tech giants and privacy advocates are spinning their best yarns as they argue about who owns your DNA or your internet clickstream. Ownership isn't always obvious and it isn't always binary. It's contestable. And as Michael and Jim are about to tell us, the consequences of that contest couldn't be greater. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Michael and Jim, Jim and Michael, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. It's great to be here. Well, we are thrilled that you have co-conceived this book. I've spent the last week plus of my life just seeing everything through the prism of ownership. And it's so fascinating and surprising how, as you all say in your subtitle, these hidden laws of ownership affect so many different parts of our lives that we don't think about. What caused each of you respectively to have a kind of personal interest in ownership? Yeah, so I'm a tree hugger, right? I'm an environmental law professor. And it turns out that the driver for many, if not most of our environmental problems is how we own things. So for instance, a factory owner doesn't own the pollution coming from the factory, right? It's basically, it's a gift to, to the public. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, and so I've always been thinking about environmental law through the ownership prism. And the genesis of this book was I was just talking with a friend. He said, it's funny that Freakonomics has never been written for ownership. And I thought, huh, because if, if you look at Freakonomics as a writer, it's basically teaching very simple microeconomics through very engaging stories. It's, you know, once you understand how incentives work, which is Freakonomics, you understand why sumo wrestlers cheat and drug dealers live with their mothers. And similarly, once you understand these six competing stories of ownership, a lot suddenly snaps into focus. For me, it's very personal. I have a hard time with very abstract ideas, but very concrete things I can relate to. So as a kid, I remember trying to cut up dessert so everyone got uh, a fair share of the pie, literally. Um, as a parent, I watched my kids struggle um, over who gets what and why. So for me, the genesis of this book is very much rooted in those very personal moments where I'm trying to work out with somebody else uh, who gets what. Well, the title of your book, Mine, I think it's properly pronounced mine <laughs> with an exclamation point, right? It's, it, it's the cry of a child who's screaming like, that is mine. I love your observation that this is a powerful instinct we have at the beginning of our lives. And you all make the case that it goes back arguably millions of years uh, from an evolutionary perspective, because we see territorial behavior in other mammals. I, I love the sound in our backyard of birds chirping, and it just sort of makes me smile. But what I don't realize is they're actually saying like, yo, back off, that's my lawn you're walking on, <laughs> you know? 
you do that well because they're their local accents, right? It depends on right, right. But you're making a really a fundamental point, which I think is is important to understanding our larger message, which is that anytime there is a scarce resource that is valued, ownership rules matter. And this is just as true for territory for a bird or a bear or a bee as it is for kids in a playground. And you say that these hidden laws of ownership that control our lives, they're hidden because so many of them are assumed, they're kind of instinctual, where they come down through stories that we've been telling for a very long time. In, in the book, you list six maxims that stand for all the ways scarce resources can be owned. We're going to dig into each of these in the course of the conversation, but just so our listeners can play along, can you tell us what those six maxims are and, and how they work quickly? Well, let me just give you the example um, in the playground with the kids we were talking about, where they're both shouting mine, and they feel so strongly about that. But when one is shouting mine, he's saying, I had it first, and therefore it's mine, first come, first served. And the girl is saying, no, I was holding on to it, therefore it's mine. Possession and first in time are two of those six stories. A third one is labor. I worked for it, and therefore it's mine. The fourth one is attachment. It's a very common one. It's mine because it's attached to something mine. The air space above my house, the minerals beneath. Mm -hmm. The fifth story is self-ownership. It's mine because it comes from my body. And the sixth and final story is family ownership. It's mine because I am in the family. And those six stories, first, possession, labor, attachment, self-ownership and family, those are all the ways everyone claims everything in the world. Well, let's get into some of the details of those stories. There's no more intimate property conflict than the person in front of you in an airplane reclining his or her seat into your lap, <laughs> which brings us to big idea number one. American Airlines sells the same space twice on every flight. Think about the last time you flew on an airplane. Did you lean back? Did someone lean their seat into your knees and laptop? Last year, Wendy Williams reclined on an American Airlines flight to New Orleans. The guy behind got mad. He started tapping his hand on the back of Wendy's seat like an irritating metronome. Wendy's video of their fight went viral. Ownership of that reclining wedge may seem obvious, but it is not. Wendy claims the wedge of space because it's physically attached to her armrest. She's relying on attachment, one of just six simple stories everyone uses to claim everything in the world. The recline button controls the wedge. Guy behind says no. He possesses that space with his knees, and possession is nine-tenths of the law. That's another of the six basic stories. When Wendy reclines, she's trespassing into his space. This mind versus mind conflict is actually a storytelling battle. It's attachment versus possession. But there's more going on. Instead of fighting with each other, passengers should be angry at American Airlines. It's selling the same space twice, on every seat, on every flight. Once for you to recline, and again for the laptop user behind. American is using an advanced tool of ownership design, what we call deliberate ambiguity. Airlines know that when ownership is ambiguous, and it's ambiguous a lot more often than you realize, when it's ambiguous, people mostly rely on good manners. Airlines profit while we try to be polite. That's the real story behind seat recline battles. This may seem a trivial example, but there is a larger point. 
The exact same storytelling battle is playing out on the internet. One of the central questions for our time is who owns our clickstream? That's the trillion dollar record of our online looks and likes. Facebook says our clickstream attaches to their app, like the button on the airplane seat. But we can push back. We can tell the possession story. Facebook and Amazon are trespassing. They're leaning their apps into our virtual laps. Right now, it's ambiguous who owns our most intimate online data. We are in the middle of a storytelling battle for control of our clickstreams. And this matters because ownership is always up for grabs and we can put our ownership story against the tech giants. All right, I'm with Wendy here. Of course people are entitled to put their seats back. There's a button for that purpose. Who are these people who insist that no one else should exercise their right to recline? So we do a lot of public speaking about this issue, and you may be shocked to hear that it's almost exactly 50-50 when we ask audiences whether you have the right to recline, a right to defend your needs. And it's not just us. USA Today actually did a nationwide poll, over 3,000 respondents, and it was the exact same thing. And what's fascinating, Rufus, is that you feel so in the right, and the folks behind you feel so in the right. And that's what we mean when we say that it's basically a storytelling battle. You know, you're basically saying, of course, it's attachment. And they're saying, of course, it's possession. And our point is, there's no natural correct answer for who owns what. And of course, the real story, as Michael pointed out in the clip, is that it's the airline that's, that's creating this problem in the first place. They're shrinking the pitch, right? They're shrinking the distance between the seats. They're taking a space that really, you know, when I grew up, no one cared about reclining seats or not. Mm-hmm. What's happened is the space between seats has gotten smaller now on some flights, basically your knees and your abdomen. And we use a tray table differently. Now it's valuable because mm-hmm. we use it for laptops and for watching movies and such. So the space is more valuable. There's less of it. And so we fight over it. And airlines are able to push the fight onto us. Well, leaving aside for a moment the unreasonableness of the knee defender position, I, I, w- <laughs> I wonder if part of what's going on here is loss aversion, the, the sense that I used to own that space and then it was taken from me. And loss aversion, of course, is really the flip side of what you all describe in the book. This is a new term for me of the endowment effect. You give someone a standard coffee cup and ask them what they would sell it for, they say $5. You hand people the same cup, ask them what they would pay for it, they say $2. Why is this? Well, this is a very fundamental psychological phenomenon. It's built deep into the human brain. You actually have two different values for the same item, depending on whether or not you possess it. The notion of physical possession, the fact of physical possession, actually changes Uh, the amount that you value something. So retailers have discovered this. The reason for the managed chaos in Apple stores, everyone's touching everything, is that Apple wants you to be touching stuff because as soon as you pick up that iPad, the price seems more reasonable. The price you would actually value the iPad at actually changes in your brain when you're physically are touching the iPad and no longer seems so so exorbitant. It's the same reason car dealerships want you to be in the car, touching the car, driving the car. And it's a very fundamental aspect Mm. of ownership. It's part of why uh, we have very different reactions to uh, theft of online services. It's why people are willing to share HBO passwords. It doesn't feel like stealing in a way that walking out of a store with a book or a CD, shoplifting, uh, triggers a much more uh, visceral, powerful, primitive emotional response. 
And this shift from the physical world to the digital world is fascinating, and it's it, it's just adding a lot of complexity to the picture, isn't it? For instance, like you all give this great example of you're walking through the grocery store and you're putting things in your shopping cart, and I'll, I'll leave it, you know, uh, at the end of an aisle just for five seconds to go and grab a you know little container of soup or something. But I'm nervous because I feel this sense of possession of the of my cart, even though. I haven't paid for anything. It's not my stuff. And and I don't feel quite the same degree of betrayal when I'm trying to buy, a, you know, something online. Yeah, it's curious, isn't it? And of course, part of it is one of the six stories is operating labor, right? You mm. took the effort to, to collect that stuff and put it in your cart. But as you pointed out, you haven't paid for it. It's not legally yours. And yet, if you go on Amazon or some other website, they do everything they can to mimic the physical act of purchase. You've got it literally a shopping cart. They're trying to trigger the same sort of part of your part of your brain that Michael was talking about, but there's something much deeper going on. We are shifting from really for most of human history, we own something, quite literally, something mm. to now when we are essentially licensing a stream of ones. And zeros. And so these studies show 85, 90% of people believe that when they buy something online, an ebook, an iTunes, they own it just like they own the hardcover book or the album. And they don't. Apple and Amazon can and they have gone into people's libraries and taken them back. Right? Imagine an Amazon rep walking into your living room, you know, stuff yeah. your bookcase. Oh, that's the one. You know, thank you very much. I'll take it back. I mean, Amazon, and probably the most famous example, they took back the novel 1984, which is exactly what Big Brother would do. It's coming over over a copyright dispute. And so we have this, this, this sense that we bought it, but we don't own it. And there is this premium that Amazon and and, and Apple are, are are getting because we have this assumption, and that's just not the case. So, for example, you know, look at your iPhone or your smartphone. What do you own? You basically own a plastic brick, right? What makes it run, the operating system, you don't own that. The data, turns out you don't own that either. And so there's this huge shift that really is going to take place, I think, over the next decade or so, or it may not, right? It may be that we keep this sort of cognitive dissonance. Well, and, and I find it interesting that you say that the airline seat problem is analogous to the question of who owns our click trails, our online data. So you say that Facebook is trying to recline their apps into our laps. How, how do you see that? The real value on the internet is what's called your, your click stream. It's the record of your likes and looks. It's where you visited. It's the reason why if you buy a plane ticket to Chicago for the weekend, everywhere you go on the internet, you see ads for Chicago restaurants and hotels. And the reason for that is that everywhere you go online is tracking you. And they're selling that data to advertisers to target ads to you. That targeted advertising based on your click stream is worth hundreds of billions of dollars. So it's a new and very valuable resource uh, and it is ambiguous who owns it. Just like the airlines use deliberate ambiguity to sell that wedge of space twice on every flight, uh, there's real ambiguity today around ownership of the clickstream. So the Facebooks and Googles, uh, they're doing what people always do in the face of a new unclaimed resource, whether it's gold in the American West or the race to claim resources on the moon, they're staking their claim. And the way that they're doing it is using the attachment story. The same as the recline button attaches to your seat, they're saying that data, the clickstream, attaches to our apps. It seems as natural that Facebook would own your data as it seems to you, Rufus, that you should be able to lean back your seat because the button allows you to do so. It's That's the power of mine, is that each of these stories is so deep-rooted in our psychology, in our 
genetics, possibly, uh, in our society and culture. But in each of those stories, we can also push back, like on the airplane, uh, but also with uh, clickstreams. We can say, no, it comes from my body, self-ownership. We can say, no, I had it first, first in time. So the key to actually having those discussions is to realize that you are actually in the middle of an ownership battle for the fate of your online life, the fate of your most intimate information, uh, which is what these companies are collecting about you. And it isn't a natural or a given that Facebook will own it. Well, and, and you make this, this great point that, that we tend to see ownership as binary. And, and, and maybe in the, in the physical world, that's more appropriate, right? I mean, like only one of us owns this tennis racket or whatever it is. But given the complexity of these ownership dynamics in the digital world, it's increasingly necessary to just see all these shades of gray because often the best answers are much more nuanced, right? And, and you, I think you all refer to it as setting the dimmer. It's not an on-off light switch, it's a dimmer switch. And it feels like on this question of click trail data, that there's probably a, a dimmer setting, right? That's optimal because on the one hand, I like having a curated experience online. I like that, you know, the internet is knows something about me because it gives me more direct access to things I'm particularly interested in, to people I'm interested in. On the other hand, obviously this incredibly intimate information can be used in a way that's exploitative. Where do you all set the dimmer switch here? Well, you hit on one of the really key insights that we're, we want people to take away from this discussion today, which is that when you go into a parking lot and you look around at all the cars, your basic strategy is to say, not mine, not mine, not mine, not mine. All those cars I can't touch. And this one, mine. So you have a very simple heuristic, very low cost way of figuring out mine, not mine, on, off. And we do that for everything. But as you start to sort of dig into any particular resource, whether it's the airplane seat or the clickstream, we realize that there's actually these competing stories. And underneath those competing stories, there are competing values at play. There's different versions of what the world should look like, what I want the world to look like and what you want the world to look like. And those may be different things. So when we ask, where should the dimmer switch be set for clickstreams? What we want your listeners to really focus on is that that is a choice. Ownership is always up for grabs. It feels natural. Mm. Facebook is saying, of course we own it. And privacy advocates might say, of course they don't. But that, of course, is masking the choosing that's going on. So when you say, let's set the dimmer at the right place, let's get out of this on-off binary, that's exactly right. And the way you set the dimmer is by responding to the values that you bring to that ownership dispute. And if you're not the one setting the dimmer, then somebody else is setting it for you. Facebook, or the state of California, or the United States. Somebody sets that switch, always. And it's always contestable. As you all point out, it's this is not just a recent digital era issue. There have been nuances to ownership control for, you know, for centuries, for millennia. I was so fascinated to learn that it used to be that we effectively had the right to walk on other people's property to forage or to or, or maybe just to pass through. I mean, you think of all those old Western movies where people are riding their horses across the country and probably they're running through people's land periodically. That eventually changed with the technological emergence of barbed wire and then subsequently a change in laws. Am I getting that right? At the founding of America, anyone could walk across anyone else's land. Uh, and part of the reason for that was that there were such scarce protein sources 
that there was a real value in having people be able to hunt freely across their neighbor's land. Mm. If, they could, if they could secure the wild animal, uh, their family might make it uh, through the winter. So in the original version of American ownership, uh, we all had the right to roam. Uh, so it was barbed wire, actually, that created uh, the no trespassing version of ownership that is such a dominant sort of ideology of ownership, a feeling of ownership mm. that so many Americans have today. That wasn't the original notion, and it's one that sort of was created through technology of low-cost ways to exclude people, to actually fence through barbed wire, to make keeping out be the norm instead of trekking across. And meanwhile, the old school view that you say has been around since the Middle Ages was that whoever owns the soil owns up to the heavens and down to hell, right? So we can imagine this column of ownership, which goes straight through the, the airplane flying at 30,000 feet above our heads. The perception that we have that we own this column came to a head with the story of William Meredith, better known as the Kentucky drone slayer. I love the story. Who pulled out a shotgun and loaded up with some birdshot and shot down a drone over his backyard. Well, I love it. When the cops came, he was shocked that they were arresting him. He said, hey, it was only number eight birdshot. What, what's the big deal? Uh, and so, you know, what he's getting at is this question of, well, if you don't own up to the heavens, how high above your property do you own? It's a story of attachment that Michael was talking about earlier. As you mentioned, about 100 years ago, there were actual trespass cases that were brought against planes flying overhead. Because if you owned if you owned a heaven, clearly it's trespassing. Huh. Yeah. If they go through your column of air, the courts were having none of that. They wanted to allow the nascent airline industry to develop. And so there are rules, interestingly, for how high drones can fly. There are no national rules yet for how low they can fly. Uh, and so this question is, you know, how high does your castle go? It, it's important because UPS, uh, Amazon, uh, Domino's, they see a future where deliveries are going to happen by drones. And they want to basically be able to zoom over your rooftops. And the question is, is that trespassing? Is that really no different than the Domino's person jumping over your fence and running along in the backyard? And the thing with drones is that drones is just one piece of attachment above your land. We have the same exact same battles going on today over wind power and solar power. So who owns the wind over your land? If somebody puts right. a windmill uh, a little bit upstream from you, uh, your windmill won't work. The, the airflow gets too disturbed. The, the, the wake of the upstream uh, windmill will block your ability to create a windmill. Same with solar power. So uh, the attachment above your land goes to really quite consequential resources, not just drones, but also the future of renewable energy. And this is not just true above your land, but this is also the same question about what's attached beneath your land, oil and water and gas and other natural resources. And so some of these new technologies cause us to see the ambiguity in our ownership laws and ownership understandings. But some new technologies also provide solutions. I mean, when we think about the aspirations that Amazon and others have to deliver books or what have you via drone, which I don't know, that might, might cut down on traffic or have other advantages. Some people might be okay with that, others are not, but there could be uh, on our dimmer switch range of settings, there could be solutions that involve you say like micropayments and custom routing of drones. What are some of the technological solutions there? Yeah, absolutely. And so essentially the idea is if, if even on off switch, you can't cross my backyard. Well, what if we have a rule that says, no, the delivery services can cross your backyard, but they have to pay you for it. And then basically there's a decision that they have to make. Uh, and you're not getting what you want as a homeowner, perhaps, but you're getting some compensation. 
And Amazon's not getting what it wants, which is free passage, but they're getting most of what they want. And that's the way you can basically start to think in a much more nuanced way about solving these problems, where you have two stories on either side that are equally valid stories. And this is one of the points we want really to get across is that ownership isn't as fixed uh, as people believe it is. It's something that's engineered. You engineer the knobs and the dial and the color of your product. Uh, you can also engineer uh, ownership in just the same way. This actually isn't something that you learn in law school um, or business school. But ownership engineering around, for example, micropayments uh, is actually very much the wave of the future in allowing the creation of whole new markets uh, mm -hmm. that actually solve some of these uh, apparently irreconcilable conflicts by making, in this, in the drone case, potentially micropayments and routing around micropayments uh, possible. So one of the things that we see quite often is that ownership technology evolves as technology evolves. So we, so we see that absolutely with congestion pricing, for example, on highways, that we have ways to manage scarcity through new forms of ownership. We talked about micropayments for drones. Uh, we also talk about that with in terms of uh, parking meters. You have smart parking meters that adjust the price um, as um, the day gets uh, more or less crowded. With new forms of sort of online technology, we can actually create new forms of ownership technology. These are very, very interrelated. Of course, if your solution is variable pricing, the value can accrue to wealthy people, which is one of the big problems with ownership stories in this country. They tend to make the rich richer. After the break, Michael and Jim tell us that nowhere is that more true than in South Dakota. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Welcome back to the show. So Michael and Jim's first big idea is that there are six simple stories that everyone uses to claim everything in the world. Those are the hidden rules of ownership. Now, in big idea number two, they say that rich people are using those hidden rules to line their pockets. South Dakota is making you poorer. What makes America so unequal? We can all point to causes like race discrimination and educational opportunities. But what keeps rich people so rich? The answer lies in the hidden rules of ownership. Already today, 60% of wealth in America is inherited, not earned. And in the next two decades, we will see the largest wealth transfer in human history from well-off parents to their kids. More than $30 trillion. That's trillion with a T. Market forces do not create this outcome. It's not chance. America's super rich have built a parallel ownership system almost no one knows about. In just a few unlikely states, the super rich can now pass on massive amounts of wealth tax-free. This matters. It locks in inequality for generations. The first step to reining in this parallel system is to recognize that it exists. And the place to start is South Dakota. The state has become the world's leading money haven. If you're super rich, you already know this. South Dakota is crushing Switzerland and the Cayman Islands. 
the state advertises itself to wealthy New Yorkers and Californians as the perfect place to stiff your family, business partners, and the government. South Dakota can do this because in America, states mostly define ownership, not the federal government, not the Constitution. No one in South Dakota benefits from the flood of money. Not one school there gets funded. Not one road gets paved. The only ones who profit are the handful of family wealth advisors who wrote the rules so they can get paid to run them. America's super wealthy have pulled off a brilliant heist. No one in South Dakota complains because the harm falls on you. You pay more in taxes. You get less in services. This concentrated wealth is terrible for America's economy. It stifles entrepreneurship, innovation, and job creation. A single rogue state is making all of us poorer while it creates an aristocracy of inherited wealth. It doesn't have to be this way. We can fix this. Simple changes to federal law can override the South Dakota heist. Well, apparently I'm not super rich because I had no idea that South Dakota was a tax haven. But this really is outrageous. Why do you think we've allowed this to happen? We've allowed this to happen because of the decentralized way that ownership works in America. You can have a state like South Dakota set up these rules uh, and set them up uh, solely in response to a handful of family wealth advisors who basically pay for the law. Um, Nobody in South Dakota learns about it. And the cost is diffused over federal taxpayers. It's diffused over states like New York and California that can't really fight back on their own against the predations of a place like South Dakota. So what what happens is these shifts in how family wealth gets passed on is of enormous concern to the extremely wealthy. um, And they're able to basically fly under the radar with um, sort of compliant uh, accomplice states like South Dakota. And it's not only South Dakota, there's a few other states uh, that are in the same racket with them, like Nevada and Alaska. I remember Gary Cohn, the senior economic advisor to Trump, had said only morons pay the estate tax. <laughs> and that's a section in our book. And that's, that's the thing that's I mean, we very much want your listeners to be aware of. The, the super wealthy actually have written for themselves, not just metaphorically, literally a parallel legal system that allows them to avoid responsibility that all the rest of us are obligated to to do. So for example, if I hit someone with my Honda and injure them, for the next 20 years, a court can garnish my wages, can intercept my wages before I get paid to pay off the judgment. But if I hit someone with my Maserati and it's structured through a South Dakota trust, I don't have to pay a penny. It's not just metaphorically, it is literally true that the super rich, this aristocracy is a aristocracy in the old British sense, free from civil responsibility and not just free from taxes, which they are also free from. It's really outrageous. You know, this this reminds me of, you know, when you talk about false beliefs about ownership, and it strikes me that one of the most dangerous and pervasive false beliefs about ownership is this belief that so many people have that the money that we make is ours and somehow the government's attempt to take some of it from you is a violation. And, and I want to ask these people, like, did you make your money without using the road system? Did you make it without running water, a sewage system, electricity, a police force to protect you, you know, without the internet, which was funded by the government like so many other technologies, without an educated population of citizens? Having said that, all of us find it painful to pay taxes at times, right? 
And it maybe does this boil down to a kind of labor claim on ownership? Like I worked my tail off for that money and I deserve all of it. That claim is so powerful. It's so primitive. It actually is in the Bible many times. There's the notion of you reap what you sow, right? That is that is actually that phrase comes from uh, comes from the Bible. Um, but even if you actually go back and read your scripture, you read your Bible, what you'll see is that in ancient uh, in, in the times when the Bible was being written, when you harvested from your field, you had to leave the edges of the field unharvested. If you shook your olive trees, the olives that fell on the ground, you couldn't keep. Those were available to be collected by the poor. So when you owned a field in biblical times, you owned it, but you paid taxes, not in the form of money to a government. You pay taxes and that the edges of the field um, and the olives that fell to the ground belonged to the poor. It wasn't that you were giving charity to the poor, it's that your ownership did not include all of the product of what you had created. So even back in the most early notions of what it meant to own something based on your labor, your labor was never, ever all yours. You always had built into the notion of ownership a notion of social obligation as part of ownership in itself. Um, this is not like something that's being taken away from you through taxation. It is that part of what it means to be allowed to be an owner, to control scarce resources through private property, is the obligation to others, not just gleaning the fields. And the, the modern version of that is taxation. Now, what you can argue about what the proper boundary of that should be, and that's a legitimate argument to have. But in the way we have it structured in America today is that for the super wealthy, they actually pay lower taxes than ordinary working people, have less responsibility, less obligation to be responsible for the injuries that they cause than ordinary people. Now, that shouldn't be the way that it should be structured. The problem of concentration of wealth, we learn in your book, is not just one of the super rich writing their own rules and paying often less taxes, but also that there have been some structural, legal dynamics that have adversely affected poor people. I was so interested to learn about what's happened with black farms in the South and the way that property and inheritance laws have kind of decimated black property ownership. Could you share that story? Sure. So the flip side of South Dakota, which is this outrageous, unconscionable giveaways to the super wealthy, is the very harsh system of ownership that we have uh, for the poor. And in particular for communities of color, African-Americans and Native Americans. So there's a phenomenon that I actually discovered about uh, 25 years ago that I called ownership gridlock. Actually, my previous book uh, was called The Gridlock Economy, is that if you're, if you're poor, and, if, and in particular if you're a poor farmer uh, who doesn't write a will, uh, what happens is that your land gets divided up when you, when you die, it gets divided up among your children. They each take a third or a fifth, however many kids there are. And if they don't write wills, it gets divided up in the next generation. So over the course of a few generations, what happens is land gets broken up, fractionated, to the point where it doesn't become, uh, isn't manageable, isn't farmable anymore. So for African-American farmers in the South, this has been an absolute tragedy. After the Civil War, Black Americans started buying land in earnest. By the 1920s, there were a million black farmers in America. Today, it's fewer than 20,000. That's a 98% drop in the last century. Mm. And the reason for that drop among black uh, landowners, it's partly racist discrimination, it's partly racist violence, it's partly an unwillingness of the federal government to lend to black farmers. Those are all contributing factors, but an important and previously unnoticed factor was this notion that as land as farms pass from generation to generation, 
uh, they fractionate. The ownership uh, grows to the point where hundreds of uh, heirs may own a tiny fractional share. And American law of ownership makes it very hard to manage those tiny fractional shares. And indeed, it becomes possible for a single outsider. In many cases, it would typically be a white Southern lawyer to buy a one one hundredth share of the farm. And with that hundredth share, they, could, they were able technically, legally, to force a sale of the whole on the courthouse steps. They, the lawyer would be the only person there to buy, and they would dispossess the family for a nominal sum they would take over the black farm uh, land. In the years since I first wrote about this, about 20 years ago, there's now been a movement uh, to actually create a new set of laws that many Southern states have passed uh, that address um, specifically this problem of too many owners leading to the loss of black farmland. A professor um, at Texas A&M, Thomas Mitchell, has been spearheading that effort to create a new set of laws to solve this problem. And, and, and I learned in your book that even though it's a teeny fraction of the original land ownership, that, that Black-owned farmlands add up to three and a half million acres worth $30 billion. And so hopefully some of these new solutions that people are putting forward will help protect that and, and improve things. I want to change gears and talk about two of the most common ways ownership gets codified. We've got copyright and patents. Why don't we start with copyright? I was just astonished to learn about the original intent of copyright law, which uh, was put in place in 1790 through the Copyright Act. Authors were given up to 28 years of control, after which their creations were free to the public. But this has been radically extended with kind of devastating consequences. Can you tell us about that? Our notion of copyright and for patent law, the intuition that we have is we feel like boy, there should be a reward to inventive and artistic labor. But that feeling is very much at odds with the history of copyright and patent law in America. The point isn't to reward labor. The point is to encourage invention and to encourage um, creativity. The background rule in America is that you are free to copy. Copying is good because copying means you have follow-on innovation. Uh, once an idea exists, if it's copied freely, anybody can use the recipe. They can all make the apple pie. So... Copyright and patent are exceptions to the notion of free copying. Now, copyright owners and patent owners have always, throughout American history, pushed for more protection. Of course they would. They want more and more and more. And in the last 50 years, the biggest change in copyright law has all been driven by a single actor, by the Disney company. Uh, they basically saw the Mickey Mouse copyright expiring about 50 years ago, uh, and they pushed Congress to give them 20 more years. Congress changed the copyright law to add 20 years to the copyright term so that Mickey Mouse would be protected a little bit longer. And then in the late 1990s, when Mickey was about to expire again, Disney went back to Congress and basically bought, they basically paid enormous campaign contributions to the relevant committee chairs on Congress to basically buy another 20 years of protection. So Mickey Mouse is still under copyright today. And what that means is that not just Mickey Mouse, but all of American culture, all of American art and music and movies from the 1920s and 30s and 40s are still under copyright today. They would have been in the public domain, but for the extension that was granted to Disney. And because they are still under copyright, almost all of them have been lost to, to our ability to, to read them, to see them, to play them. The reason for that is that it's very hard to find who those owners are. There's no central database if who owns a copyright. Uh, most books and movies from the 1920s, 30s, and 40s can't be shown. They can't be seen. There's actually more American culture available from the 1800s today than there is from the first half of the 20th century. 
It's an incredible loss, all to preserve Disney's billions in one fictional mouse. It's tragic. And, and I mean, I just, I just saw that The Great Gatsby was just finally released. It was published in 1925. I mean, now I've noticed there's a prequel novel uh, based on The Great Gatsby about Nick Carraway coming out soon. There's a graphic novel version coming. So you get these sort of explosions of different ways that people play with, you know, these, these past artistic productions. And of course, that's how art works, right? I mean, you know, we have the great quote, good artists copy, great artists steal, which is variously attributed to Faulkner, Stravinsky, and Picasso. They all said some version of it. But to me, the larger point here is that we have a mythology of singular achievement. And this is one reason I'm so happy you guys are co-authoring this book. <laughs> but it seems to me that art is much more of a collaborative process than our copyright law would suggest. And we really hamstring the creative process with all this excessive ownership and um, copyrights and patents. Right. Too much ownership, paradoxically, is as costly as too few, not just with copyright, but also with patents. We have too many patents in this country today. And the net effect of the patent system in America is to actually subtract value from the economy. Because to have almost any modern invention today, you need to assemble uh, bits of information. If each of those are separately patented, your ATM network can't work or your iPhone can't work. Each of those assemble thousands, or in some case, tens of thousands of separate patents. It was interesting to see Biden waiving COVID vaccine patents. And, and obviously, I, I think a lot of things have been done differently around the development of COVID vaccines, because we're all in it together. And we have to, we ha as a world, we have to solve this problem. I wonder if this historical moment, maybe one that helps us get over some of these, um, the patent obsession and some of these ownership laws that negatively impact all of us. It may be. I mean, you think about environmental issues, right? So climate change uh, technologies for cleaner, greener energy uh, with the ozone depletion, right? These technologies for ozone-friendly compounds, all these treaties basically talk for technology transfer. In practice, it doesn't happen, right? There's a very, very strong lobby in the U.S. and Europe in particular where they say, look, you know, we're not charities. We've developed these technologies, and if developing countries want to use them, they got to pay for them. So excessive ownership has erased a century's worth of art and culture, stymied innovation, and hurt the environment. Pretty grim, right? But coming up after the break, Jim and Michael propose new ownership strategies that might just save the planet. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the LinkedIn Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the show. The first big idea from mine by my guests, Michael Heller and James Salzman, is that ownership is really just storytelling. The second big idea is that those stories are fueling inequality and impeding innovation. 
Now, in big idea number three, they propose some solutions, some new stories to address those ownership injustices. New York City tap water is the best. It really is. New York City is some of the world's best drinking water. It routinely wins blind taste tests against even the priciest bottled water. How is this possible? For a century, city water arrived in huge pipes straight from the Catskill Mountains 100 miles north. But upstate farmers didn't benefit from the clean water after it left their land. So they started developing, filling wetlands, cutting trees. By the 1980s, city water quality was in decline. So New York started planning for a $4 billion treatment plant. But then a city employee, a guy named Al Appleton, had a genius idea. He reached for an advanced tool of ownership engineering, what we call as-if ownership. Today, because of Al, the city pays upstate farmers as if they own the clean water that their farms provide. Cash payments gave upstate landowners a reason to keep trees and wetlands intact. New York City saved billions by investing in green instead of gray infrastructure, in trees instead of concrete. Today, because of Al, the city still has the nation's best drinking water. Ownership engineering really works, and not just for water. These are the rules that shape our lives every day, every minute. It's where you call home, what you eat and drink, who you watch and listen to. And once you see how ownership really works in the 21st century, you can be a more effective advocate for change as a consumer and as a citizen. I love this story of the New York City water supply, not just because I'm a New Yorker, but also because it's a classic, elegant solution. I I mean, I've been used to the idea of charging companies for the negative externalities of pollution, but less accustomed to the idea of paying people for positive impact. Is this the beginning of something that we may see more of, do you think, Jim? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the fact is the way we manage our lands, our ecosystems provide a huge stream of benefits that we all take for granted. And the problem is that if you're a landowner and the benefits you provide are not essentially monetized, you're not rewarded for, don't be surprised if the landowner decides to sell to Walmart or to let the water quality degrade. So, you know, we're used to basically penalizing landowners for polluting. We're not used to rewarding them. And this is not just the drinking water story in New York City. This is how one of the most important ways we're going to battle climate change. It turns out land use, how we use our lands, deforestation, is a huge driver for climate change. The trees suck in the carbon dioxide. And when you burn them for slash and burn agriculture, for ranching or for palm oil plantations, you're releasing the carbon and losing that future sink as well. So there are billions of dollars that are basically pouring into Indonesia in Brazil, they're trying to reward the landowners for the services they've previously provided for free. Now, this is complicated to do, and there have been a lot of scams. I mean, one needs to be mm. careful about this. Um, but if we don't recognize the benefits uh, that we receive as a society from the way that land is managed, we're going to basically keep investing in so-called gray infrastructure, right? After the fact, we try to clean the water instead of green infrastructure, which is to keep the water clean in the first place and let nature do its job for us. You know, another just fascinating example of the importance of ownership engineering, as, as you guys say in the book, is the story of the deadliest catch, uh, which really points to how irrational our first-in-time ownership instinct can be, right? Because here's a case where the, the, the small adjustment to ownership design literally saved people's lives. 
Right. I mean, it was small, but it was inspired. I mean, no one had ever thought of it. A lot of smart people have looked at fisheries over the years, and it took someone, I don't know who it was, but someone in Iceland to suddenly say, wait a minute, we can actually own fish differently. And so this person in Iceland came up with this inspired idea for what became known as catch shares. And the idea basically was, instead of allocating fish first come, first served, take the season's catch, divide it up into individual, what were called allowances or catch shares, and allocate those to the various boats. It's basically the story of attachment. And so they basically have the season to catch that much of fish. They may have allowances for five tons or 10 tons of, of halibut or, or king crab or, or whatever it is. When the weather is bad, they stay in port. When the prices are low, they stay in port. And this basically was a huge win for fishing vessels, much safer, much more profitable, but there also were losers. And the losers in this case were canneries because canneries had benefited before, you know, supply far exceeded demand. And so the price was very low and the canneries basically controlled the process, made a lot of money. Mm-hmm. With catch shares, the fishing vessels basically get the profits. And, and another loser was the deadliest catch television show, which was <laughs> accustomed to people just driving their boats into these horrible squalls because they were competing over based on first in time, right? They just, everybody had to fish as quickly as they could. Uh, and the squalls themselves, the storms they were fishing in would discourage other fishers for going out so that so the possible rewards were even higher. So Rufus, you're telling me that you're not going to watch a TV show called The Not-So-Deadly Catch? <laughs> yeah, the the serene afternoon on the, on the water fishing show. Yeah, I would watch that. Well, you point out that when it comes to land, the, the first-come, first-served instinct often butts up against the claims of more recent inhabitants who've made a place their home for, for years, and they've labored to make it beautiful, so they have a labor claim. Based on first-come, first-served, our entire country properly belongs to Native American descendants. And adverse possession, I think, if, if I was a studious student of your book, is the term for the rights that more recent inhabitants can claim, that, hey, we've been on this land for decades, we put a lot of work into it, and, and we now own it. Uh, something that I found totally fascinating is, is your claim that, that history, that all of human history is a series of adverse possession claims writ large. Right. If you take any piece of land in America, every piece of land goes back to some conquest, to some dispossession, to some original owner who said, this is mine, uh, vis-a-vis somebody else who had a different story. So in many parts of the country, that was um, adverse possessors. It was Western settlers who were um, disputing uh, the story of ownership that Native Americans had uh, based on uh, first or based on labor. So part of our message is that there is no natural, correct, empirical understanding, even of the term first. This is one of the challenges that, that we actually have with our law students, is they think of the word first as having some empirical uh, reality. And what we try to get across to them is that who's first is itself a choice, is itself a set of value choices about who can be first, who we are going to mm. allow to count as someone who could be first, and what kinds of activities count as first. So when the uh, courts were first deciding in this country uh, that the settlers, uh, not the Native Americans, were the owners uh, when there were conflicts over claims that trace back to those two different sources of title, What the court said is uh, what counts as first is the first to cut down trees, the first to clear fields and build stone fences, the first to plant crops in ordered rows, basically the first to make New England look 
like Old England. So for the early American courts in the early 1800s, um, it wasn't that it was possession by settlers taking over from first by Native Americans, is that the settlers in their mind were first. They were the first mm, to do yeah. to the land the kinds of things that gave rise to ownership. So even a term such as first that seems so intuitive and empirical is itself a contested story. And one of the key things to realize as well, and this is true throughout the book, is that many ownership rules are instrumental. We use the, the metaphor of a remote control. They're designed to get people to do certain things. And so the settling of the West, the Homestead Act, the Mining Act of 1872, how you get water rights, all of those were designed to get people on the land as quickly as possible and start diverting water, to start you know, homesteading, to start digging for minerals. And the idea was ownership basically rewarded a particular type of behavior. And, you know, in the in early early America, the sort of Native American tradition as seen as sort of living lightly on the land, that didn't count. They weren't going to use ownership to do that. And obviously much more was going on with dispossession. But that's part of the story. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, everybody tends to have self-serving definitions of, of what constitutes ownership. And as you point out, I mean, if you look around the globe at all the, the most serious regional conflicts, often resulting in just horrendous acts of war and, and long-term suffering. It's very often these, it comes down to these disputes about ownership. And that's true, that's true in the Ukraine. That's true uh, uh, you know, in Cuba, uh, um, thinking about you know, the claims of Miami exiles. It's true in every corner, in every spot of the world. What you have is, as we said, you said earlier, a series of historical dispossessions. It's not that one is right necessarily and one is wrong, but what you have is competing claims, competing stories um, of people over a finite amount of over a finite amount of land that we all share. So, turning to a topic that is uh, a lighter and sunnier subject for many of our listeners, um, I love your account of the emergence of condominiums, condos. I had no idea that there were no condos before 1960 because, as you say, there was no ownership design that could support them. Right. So the uh, sort of notion in America of ownership was always the yeoman farmer, right, with land around and a single family house that they sort of way back into American history. The notion of apartment buildings was they were viewed as sort of feudal and European, somewhat disreputable. Uh, so there was no notion of sort of separate ownership of a home in a building that had to be brought in uh, from Germany. German law had that from the late 1800s. And then it went surprisingly into Puerto Rican law in the 50s. And then it jumped from Puerto Rico to New York, and then it spread nationally. So it didn't used to be the case that it was even possible to own such a thing as a condo, um, to finance a separate unit as a separate piece of real estate. Um, but now it is. And today, uh, nine out of 10 uh, new residential units in this country are built in some form of residential association, in some form of condo. It went from zero, roughly, to about 70 million Americans now living uh, in condo associations over the last uh, 60 years. It's been a radical reshaping of the American landscape uh, in a form of co-ownership, right, where we individually own our own units and we collectively, we co-own uh, the common spaces, whether it's the elevator or the roof in the lobby or the golf course or the marina. There's different kinds of uh, condo associations. And as you say in the book, a lot of the rules and regulations in condos would not be legal, right? They're all, they're all kind of like, I mean, I, I live in a condo in New York City. 
And there are moments where it feels like an impingement on your freedom, right? I mean, it's, it's, there are a lot of very specific and peculiar kind of restrictions on behavior. Impingement is an understatement. So the theory of condos is that everyone unanimously has agreed by contract to, for example, no pets or sure. no flying an American flag or no political signs or you have to be married or you have to earn a certain amount of money. So all those restrictions we generally allow as a matter of private contract between individuals. Uh, the thing about condos is that those private contracts end up governing potentially a very large community. Some, some condos are as large as small towns, so they can be enormously more restrictive uh, through this private contracting. Uh, and it's, it's really a question at the cutting edge of ownership design is how much should we allow people to contract away their most basic constitutional rights, like the right to have a political sign. Well, as we're talking about new structures of ownership, I mean, this, this one dates back to the 1960s. Uh, more recently, we have NFTs or non-fungible tokens, which everybody's talking about in the media. I gather that you are, are, are somewhat skeptical about NFTs. What, what, what's your view on non-fungible tokens? I'm not skeptical of their existence. I'm skeptical of their usefulness. So a Bitcoin, for example, is a fungible token. Each Bitcoin is like every other. The Bitcoin is trying to basically mimic money, mimic cash. A non-fungible token is meant to be a unique identifier that can identify any digital anything. For example, for the Mona Lisa, there's one original Mona Lisa uh, that somebody owns. Uh, and then there's a bunch of postcards and posters that hang in dorm rooms. But the thing for online art is that every online image is identical to every other one down to the last pixel, right? It's a, it's a string of ones and zeros that can be perfectly copied. So if every digital piece of art is exactly the same as its copy, how do you know which is the original? And the answer is you don't. So one of the really lovely things about the online art world in the last generation is that it's been one of our more democratic and open and appealing forms of new media. What NFTs do is try to impose the world of specula speculation and finance, financialization, onto the sort of democratic medium of online art. My view of NFTs, my skepticism, is that uh, what NFTs do is bring together the absolute worst of art and the worst of blockchain. NFTs operate on a technology called blockchain that provides that unique string of ones and zeros. And what NFTs do is basically destroy both. So what the downside for art is that it basically introduces an artificial and somewhat ruthless uh, sense of uh, sort of speculative frenzy into online art making. And for blockchain, what it does is NFTs are enormously energy consuming. Uh, they are uh, wasteful to a, a degree that is hard to even uh, fathom how much electricity uh, gets burned uh, to create and then manage NFTs. So I view it as a step backwards uh, for art and for blockchain. Right. Well, the energy consumption is a big issue for blockchain, broadly speaking, Bitcoin in particular. And I think that the advocates would say, well, you know, there are various new technologies that are going to make that less of an issue over time. I think so many of us find NFTs to be somewhat of a head scratcher. There's this perception of scarcity, right? Like, you know, I can purchase a video clip of uh, Michael Jordan dunking a ball, but there's an almost infinite number of NFTs that can be generated, right? Like any, any individual tweet or you name it, there's, the, 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 you know, there's a sort of 
infinite supply that can be created. I, I share some of your skepticism there. So I'm skeptical, partly for the reason that you just said, that um, it's trying to create artificial scarcity, but the NFT itself doesn't actually give you any property Correct. rights in the underlying art. So the copyright, the ability to display, to make derivative works from, to do all the, to put the print on t-shirts, the Beeple image that sold for $69 million, you yep. can't do any of that with the NFT. You don't own the art. Right, right. So your ownership rights are far more limited than people realize. What you own actually is just the NFT, unattached for, to anything uh, else. So let's talk about the sharing economy. I was, I was actually surprised by some of the skepticism in your in your kind of conclusive section on the sharing economy, because I, for one, see a lot of promise in a move towards a more kind of collaborative definition of ownership. If you look at human behavior in our ancestral environment, very consistently, they all have powerful taboos around hoarding. If you kill a deer, for instance, if a hunting party kills a deer, it is the communal property of the tribe. So it, it strikes me that we have the capacity as a species to be very communal in the way that we treat each other and the way that we treat shared resources. Admittedly, that has not been on, uh, on display in the last century or two. <laughs> but when, when I look at the sharing economy and, and the fact that I now share bicycles with everybody in New York City, to me, that feels like progress and maybe a return to our better impulses. But it sounds like you don't quite see it that way. Actually, I, I agree with most of what you said. So when I say the word mine, uh, one of the six basic stories is family ownership, and family ownership is ours. And what mm -hmm. you raise about tribal and communal ownership is very much integral to, deep in, embedded in, this sort of primal history of ownership, which is that when we own things, we often uh, we own them in, as part of a collective whether it's our family or our clan or our tribe or the nation state. So there is intrinsically, inevitably, historically in ownership, this collective uh, shared sense. So I do think that is as deep a part of ownership as the sort of individualistic, no trespassing, hands off, mine version that gets sort of played out in modern uh, popular culture. I think both of those are two sides of the same understandings that go very far back in history. So I think the challenge of the sharing economy is that um, it has sort of a faux version of that sort of collective mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. shared uh, economy, that it's basically trying to engage or catalyze or activate uh, that sharing uh, notion that we have. But if you look at the underlying structure of ownership for much of the shared economy, what you have is not real sharing, what you have is hyper concentration of ownership, where instead of owning your own, whatever it is, a chainsaw or car or whatever, yep. uh, what you, uh, instead of having the stock of having the thing, what you do is you basically rent or license a flow of services and you have a, a smaller and smaller number of corporate entities that own the underlying, uh, whether it's the song uh, or the chainsaw or the car or the apartment or the house or whatever it is, so that what you, um, you become in some sense is much more, more vulnerable uh, to basically, if you stop making that flow of payments for that flow of services, you actually have uh, nothing. You have uh, no music. Uh, you have no transportation. Potentially, you have uh, no home. So the sharing economy has a lot of potential, uh, but it's in very in large measure, it's really a misnomer. It's really a, a hiding, a real trend towards more and more concentration of ownership in a small number of corporations of the assets that are really most essential to us for flourishing who we are as humans, uh, not just where we live 
but what we eat uh, and how we get around. Uh, so I actually don't think I want to live in a world where I, for example, uh, rent my uh, wedding ring or lease uh, my dog. Um, I think that actually having some tangible physical possession of stuff uh, connects to a very deep, I think actually spiritual sense that we have um, uh, of who we are as individuals, that uh, we part and partly understand that through some of the most important material objects in our lives and our ownership of those, I think has some real uh, importance to us as individuals that is uh, you know, perhaps lost in a world where we stream um, a bunch of ones and zeros and own uh, nothing. I, for me, for example, it really matters uh, that I have my old cookbooks. I remember the dinner parties from 30 or 40 mm-hmm. years ago that generated mm-hmm. that stain on that recipe. Yeah. It's like a very tangible, visceral, physical feeling that I worry about losing in a world of you know just tapping idly on the phone to have uh, food come through uh, Grubhub. That's so interesting. I, on the other hand, would like to lease your dog. We have we have such a cute dog. She is such an adorable little dog. <laughs> we would love to like think how practical this would be, Michael. You've got you're ready to go on vacation, and it turns out that my children are starved for doggy time, right? I really think this could work out really well. <laughs> there are some great gains from trade. We'll take this offline and figure this one out together. Okay, but I agree with you that I mean I think a super important thing you you guys raise in this final section is that this kind of what we call the sharing economy has the potential to exacerbate wealth concentration and be a scenario, right, where basically, as you point out in the book, owning a home has been one of the major kind of wealth generators for the middle class in the last century for Americans. And if we move away from that kind of ownership, there's a potential serious loss. But I think it's just, as you say, cars are only driven three or 4% of the time, 96% of the time they're sitting in driveways. It's just a horrible allocation of resources and maybe everybody can, some people can save up to buy a car and have that generate money for them. Other people can lease out their chainsaw or whatever it is. I mean, hopefully this could become a, a more efficient system that results in a less materialistic world that's more uh, convenient and everybody prospers. Well, I, I wish all that is true as long as people keep buying books. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Particularly mine, which is fantastic and such a wonderful read. And thank you guys so much for uh, writing this book and sharing it with us today. Thank you. It is such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Want to hear two more ideas from mine? Download the Next Big Idea app and check out Michael and Jim's Book Bite, which has not three big ideas, but five. And why stop there? In our app, you'll also find 12-minute audio summaries of groundbreaking new books, Zoom discussions with your favorite authors, and mind-blowing e-courses. Search for Next Big Idea in your app store. Next week, I'll be chatting with New York Times tech correspondent Cade Metz about the astonishing rise of artificial intelligence and whether we should be celebrating or worried about a robot-controlled future. Special thanks to Michael Heller and James Salzman. Their book, Mine, is available wherever books are sold, including the Next Big Idea app. I like to think that I co-own this show with my wonderful team. This episode was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger. Our executive producer is Michael Kavnav. Theme music by Costa Galanopoulos. Sound design by Mike Toda. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week. Hold up. 